Good morning, everyone. Um, over this uh, past month, uh, for those of you who might be visiting for us with us today, our, our focus in the lead up to Christmas uh, has been upon the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, understanding uh, that the one who is truly God has become truly man. And uh, we've seen various aspects uh, from the scriptures that are of great importance uh, for understanding this glorious truth. We've looked at the fact that it was promised uh, in God's sovereign plan. Uh, We've thought through the reasons as to why it was necessary. And we've uh, discovered the glory and the joy that the incarnation continues to bring uh, today. But as we conclude this series today, I want us to look even deeper into the nature of the incarnation. I want us to understand, or at least uh, understand as best as we can in our finite minds, uh, the infinite God and the wonder of the incarnation. Um, I want us to understand that Jesus Christ is one person and the only person who is both truly God and truly man. And it's as we recognise this truth that many other aspects related to the incarnation fall into place. It's as we recognise this truth that many other claimers for the position of the saviour of the world, indeed all the other contenders, fall away because there is no one like the Lord Jesus Christ. There never has been and there never will be. He is the unique Son of God and the only saviour of this world. The technical phrase that is used to describe the two natures of humanity and divinity and the one person of Jesus is the hypostatic union. You may have come across that term before. Hypostatic means substance or reality. But it's not merely an an abstract manner, but it's a personal substance, a personal reality. So when uh, you hear people talk about the hypostatic union, it refers to the personal union of the divine and human natures in Jesus Christ. One person, two natures. To help us understand this uh, this morning, we're going to look at the scriptures, and we're going to see the evidence that the scriptures put forward about the incarnation. Then we're also going to see how the early church explained it, what they found within the scriptures and how they pulled that all together. And finally, we'll see how this mysterious union leaves us in absolute awe and wonder at the wisdom of God. And uh, in that last part, we're going to answer some crucial questions uh, that come up Um, within this. Last week, when we studied the angel's message to the shepherds uh, about the birth of the Saviour, we saw that the the joyous speech of the angels turned quickly into a joyous song. And then then we saw exactly the same thing happen for the shepherds. Uh, They spoke the truth about Christ. They went out and evangelised the people that they came across. And then they broke out in song. They couldn't help themselves but to give praise and glory to God. And I said that theology always leads to doxology. That is, a right understanding of God always leads to giving him praise and glory. The more uh, we understand who God is as revealed in his word, the more we have to praise God and the more we want to praise God. The more we're left doing nothing but wanting to praise God. God. So as we study the nature of the incarnation today, I I pray that you soak in these truths so that you may either praise God for the first time as you recognize the true Savior in the Lord Jesus, or that your love for Jesus grows even deeper as we seek to plumb the unfathomable depths of who he is. So the first point to address this morning about the nature of the incarnation 
is that it is attested by the infallible witness of Holy Scripture. And you'll see the points for this outline for the sermon in the back of your news sheet. The nature of the incarnation is attested by the infallible witness of Holy Scripture. The mystery of Christ being one person with both divine and human natures is shown, is is proven, is confirmed by the ultimate authority, and that is the Holy Bible. Only this source is completely reliable because it is God's breathed out word. And because it is his word, it reflects his character, which is holy and perfect and righteous. God cannot lie. And so his word cannot lie. It is infallible. And we would also add that because it is infallible, it is inerrant meaning that it does not contain error. And so it cannot contain error and it does not contain error because it is God's word written through men. It is inspired. There is nothing like it. And from this ultimate source of authority, the nature of the incarnation is tremendously displayed. So we're going to do... uh, a shotgun, a scattergun approach to the the New Testament scriptures here as we we look at uh, the wider testimony of scripture. We're going to pick up uh, lots of different verses uh, now uh, to highlight uh, the person of Jesus. So let's just begin and and instead of just following these through, flicking through in your Bible, you might, might just take notes of where these are and you can look them up in more detail later. But so let's look at the passages attesting to Jesus' deity. And we see that in the announcements that are made by others, firstly. In John 20, verse 28, when Jesus appeared to the disciples in the upper room, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. That's pretty clear. In Romans 9, verse 5, Uh, When Paul is explaining about the mystery of Israel, how God's people have, uh, has has the gospel failed, has God's word failed because Israel has not uh, accepted Christ? Well, Paul's listing these benefits uh, that belong to the people of Israel and he says to them in verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 13, speaking to the Christians uh, about the second coming of Christ, he speaks of them as waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And then in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, Peter's writing to the Christian church and he says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So those are announcements that are made by others, but we also see announcements that are made by Jesus himself. In John chapter 8, verses 56 to 58, Jesus is in a heated discussion with the Jews, uh, and he says to them, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The same title that was used by God himself when he revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush Uh, In Exodus chapter 3, I am. So we see Jesus' deity in the announcements. We also see it in actions that are performed by others. Uh, People worship him. Uh, The Magi in Matthew 2, verse 2, they come searching for the newborn king so that they might worship him. And at the end of Matthew's gospel, uh, the disciples come before the resurrected Jesus and bow down and worship him. Matthew 28, 
verse 17. Uh, People also pray to Jesus. Stephen, as he was being martyred, as he had uh, stones being thrown at him, he cried out to Jesus, Lord, receive my spirit. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In Acts 7, verse 59. But not only the actions performed by others, but the actions performed by Jesus himself. Uh, We see that he performs miracles. And there are too many miracles uh, to note, uh, particular references. But uh, we see in all the miracles he has power over nature, power over sickness, power over the demonic. We also see that he, he knew what was in the heart of men. He had omniscience. John chapter 2. And then in John chapter 1 and verse 48, we see that he, he saw Nathaniel, the disciple, while sitting under the tree. And not, he didn't see him because he was within sight. He knew Nathaniel. That is testimony to Jesus' divinity. There is much more that could be said. Uh, For there are passages uh, that speak of Jesus' sovereignty, uh, his omnipresence, uh, his immortality. But these are surely enough to see that the scriptures attest to Jesus' deity. But what about his humanity? Well, firstly, we see that he had a human body. Uh, He was born, says Luke in chapter 2, verse 7. And he grew. In Luke chapter 3, verse 23, it says that he began his ministry when he was about 30 years old. We see that his human body was crucified and buried. He died, Luke 23, verse 46. And then this crucified body, which was buried, arose again. It was resurrected In Luke 24, we see the resurrection appearances. And in verse 42, uh, Jesus, you know, if he's not been raised in a physical body, is is doing everything he can to to prove. Um, Otherwise, he's actually lying to his disciples and confusing them because he goes about, uh, he asks them, do you have anything to eat? And they offer him a piece of fish and he eats it in front of them. So Jesus is is just a liar if it is not true that he was raised in a physical body, a glorified body, but a physical human body. We also see that he had a human mind. In Luke 2, verse 52, we see that the young Jesus, he grew in wisdom. We also know that the limitations of his human mind in Mark 13 Verse 32, where he he tells us that he didn't know the time of his return when he would be coming again. We see that he had human emotions. Uh, He marveled in Matthew 8, verse 10. He was sorrowful in John 11, verse 35. He was tired in Mark 4, 38. He also had a human soul and spirit. John 12, verse 27, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. And then in John 13, 21, we read that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. So once again, much more could be said, but these verses should also be enough to attest to the true humanity of Jesus. Before we move into the historical teaching of the church on this matter, I just want to highlight several more verses which clearly attest to the two natures in the one person of Jesus. Uh, We see in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Hebrews 1, verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. In Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7, we read that Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And then in John chapter 1, after uh, John explains that the word 
was in the beginning and he was with God and he was God. He says in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The infallible witness of Holy Scripture attests to the nature of the Incarnation. There is simply no getting around this clear testimony as to the person of Christ. He is truly God. And at the same time, he became and is now and forever also truly man. If we are to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, then we are to worship him as he is revealed to us by the authoritative word. But with the details of these scriptures presented, the question then is, how do we put all this together? How do we understand them in a way that does justice to both of Jesus' natures? And that leads us to point two. Secondly, the nature of the incarnation is acknowledged by the inductive work of the Holy Church. During the first Five centuries after Christ's ascension, the Holy Church worked hard to understand what the Holy Scripture taught about the person of Jesus. Now, in the last 200 years or so, coming back from ourselves, uh, liberal theologians, those who do not believe that the Bible is the inspired and infallible Word of God, they make the suggestion that the true Jesus of history Uh, was nothing like what we find in the pages of Scripture. Now, there's no consensus as to who Jesus really was. As many liberal theologians, there's as many pictures of Jesus that you'll find. Uh, But in general, it's claimed that Jesus was, was some humble peasant teacher who was merely trying to bring about social change. And it was the power hungry church who put false words on his lips and the lips of others that made him out to be God. But the reality is nothing like that. It was not a matter of the church trying to make Jesus more than what he was, but a case of trying to understand what the scriptures revealed about him. The church did not make claims about the person of Jesus by their own authority. They acknowledged the claims from scripture about the person of Jesus. And that's why I use the term inductive. It means that you start with studying the text of scripture and then you draw your conclusions from the scripture to begin with our own conclusions and then read them into the text of Scripture is very wrong indeed. We must always submit our own thoughts and our own ideas to the Holy Scripture, not the other way around. If we don't, then we're going to end up in all sorts of trouble. And that's exactly what happened in the first five centuries when certain people brought their own thoughts to the text And the church had to respond against them with the charge of heresy. And heresy means a deviation from the fundamental truths of Scripture. It's often the times of trial that force you to work hard to understand something in greater detail. Someone challenges you, you have to go back to the Scriptures and, and really understand, is this what I believe? Is this what the Scriptures actually say? Well, the Holy Church had lots of opportunity to grow in their understanding of Christ in the first five centuries as people tried in various ways to pervert the words of Scripture. Now, some of these perversions began with the good intention of of trying to protect one aspect of Jesus' nature, but it often came at the expense of diminishing or denying the other nature of Jesus. So let me just briefly summarise the main heresies concerning the person of Jesus that the early church had to counter. And, you know, when we think about uh, the sects and the cults that are around us today, we we recognise that there is nothing new under the sun, nothing whatsoever. The things that are happening today that we see in in these cults and sects are just rehashes, repackaging 
of things that people had come up with in their own sinfulness uh, many years before. So, the church came across those denying that Jesus was truly man. Um, Some suggested that Jesus only seemed to have a human body. It was just an illusion. Some suggested that Jesus had a human body, but he had a divine mind and spirit. So his human body was really just a shell, a casing for the divine nature. There were those denying Jesus was truly God. Uh, Some suggested that Jesus was infused with a divine nature. So he was born uh, uh, merely human, and then at his baptism, um, he uh, was adopted uh, by the Father, infused with a divine nature, and he became the Son of God. Some suggested that Jesus was the preeminent divine being, but he was still created uh, by the Father. He was the greatest creation, but he was still a creation nonetheless. There are also those denying that Jesus was distinct from the Father. Uh, These suggested that God appeared at certain times in distinct modes of the Father or the Son or the Spirit. But he was never at all times both Father, Son and Spirit. Now, Church leaders came together at uh, Nicaea, which is in modern-day Turkey. They came together in Nicaea in 325 AD by order of Emperor Constantine. And then they uh, came again uh, in Constantinople, same region, in 381 AD. And they came together to deal with these heresies. And from this is where the Nicene Creed uh, was established. And I just want to read the second paragraph, uh, which refers specifically to Jesus. It says this, We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. This was a a clear statement about the true deity and true humanity of Jesus. Let me just say as well that uh, it was not Constantine, the emperor, who enforced uh, upon the church or was manipulated into enforcing this teaching by the church. But these statements were merely or simply articulating the teaching of the church uh, from the study of the scripture since the words of the New Testament were originally penned in the first century. The Orthodox Church has always been teaching the same thing. However, the question remained as to how, how these two natures existed within the one Person, right? So Nicene Creed just affirmed that Jesus had the two natures, divine and human, one person. Uh, But how did that actually work? And as people began to think through this, it led to two more heretical developments. There were those, on the one hand, denying that Jesus was actually one person. Uh, They suggested that Jesus had two persons within himself, a human person and a divine person. So a split personality uh, to the extreme. Uh, This was put forward by uh, a teacher called Nestorius. On the other hand, there were those denying that Jesus had two distinct natures. Uh, They suggested that Jesus' human and divine natures combined into one nature. 
Uh, Like when you mix blue and yellow paint and you get green. Uh, There was a third thing that came about. Well, church leaders again met in 481 AD, so towards the end of the 5th century. And they affirmed the statements of the Nicene Creed. And then they made a further statement which became known as the Chalcedonian Creed. Now, you might be familiar with the Nicene Creed. You may never have heard of the Chalcedonian Creed. Now, I'm going to read it to you. Unfortunately, we can't have that up on the screen, but I really encourage you to look this up uh, when you get home. But just listen and listen to the repeated phrases that come about throughout. We then... Following the Holy Fathers, is those who put forward the, everything at Nicaea, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable, rational soul and body, consubstantial, coessential with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood in all things like unto us without sin. Begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead and in these later days for us and for our salvation born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God according to the manhood. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. As the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. There is much in this, and I don't want to spend too much time here, other than to highlight two things. And again, I encourage you to go and look up this creed uh, during the week. But the first thing that I want to highlight is that it clearly states, and you would have heard of that, repeatedly states that Jesus is both truly God and truly man. And that he's not two persons, but that he is one person who is both truly God and truly man. One person with two natures. But the second thing to notice are the words that the one person Jesus Christ is to be acknowledged in two natures, and who is inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. Now, this is such helpful language in thinking through the divinity and the humanity of Christ. The first two aspects highlight the distinction between the divine and human natures. And so, without confusion means that there never is any confusion or mixing of the two natures. There's no blue plus yellow equals green. It's also without change. There is never any change or modification to the two natures. Uh, The human nature is always the human nature. The divine nature is always the divine nature. The second two aspects highlight the unity between the divine and human natures. Without division means that there is never any division or marking out of two distinct persons within the one person. Without separation means there is never any separation or margin between the two natures. While they are distinct, they are unified. While we understand that Jesus' divine nature can do things that his human nature can't, and and vice versa, Jesus is still the one person. Think of the words of the angels to the shepherds in Luke 2, verse 11. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Saviour who is Christ the Lord. Now only Jesus' human nature is born and only Jesus' divine nature is Lord. And yet here these terms are given to the one person. The work of the early church to write these statements was merely trying to acknowledge what is so clearly taught in Scripture. But even if something is simple and clear, it doesn't mean that it's simplistic. For the person of Christ is magnificent and deep and mysterious. The nature of the incarnation is acknowledged by the inductive work of the Holy Church. And we are heirs of their incredible work to understand this incredible truth. We must remember that we're not the first people uh, to delve into the mysteries of God. For in his wisdom, God has worked through his people to bless his people. And this brings us to our last point today. Point three is that the nature of the incarnation affirms the inscrutable wisdom of holy God. The reality that the salvation of the world resides in the one who is both truly God and truly man can only come from the mind of God. The incarnation affirms God's wisdom. It establishes it. It pronounces it. It insists upon this being God only wise. And his ways are not slightly above us. His thoughts are not merely somewhat deeper than ours. No, they are inscrutable. They are unfathomable. They are incomprehensible. Romans 11.33 declares, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. God has revealed the truth about the incarnation to us. But it is such a profound truth that we will never uh, be able to fully grasp how it is possible. How Jesus Christ can be at the same time both truly God and truly man. We are called though to believe this truth. We are called to study this truth. But as with all things of God, we are called to humbly submit to this truth. Even if we can't make the physics of it work in our own minds. As finite beings, we are to trust in the one who is infinitely, inscrutably wise. But what we can see, however, is how the nature of the incarnation affirms God's wisdom. And I want to put forward three crucial matters that that could not be true, that could not be made possible without the mystery of the two natures in the one person of Christ. Uh, before I put these matters forward, we, we just need also to understand something about the nature of God. One of God's attributes, one of his, his characteristics is his immutability. That is, he cannot change. He is eternally who he is, from everlasting to everlasting. And related to this is his impassibility. That is, he does not experience involuntary passions uh, or emotions. Now, that doesn't mean that God is aloof or uncaring. God is passionate And God is active. But his passions always flow out of his unchanging character rather than as a a passive response to something that's caused outside of himself. We as humans are are, are emotional screwballs sometimes. Uh, we, We are affected by who we are, but we are also affected by what others do to us all the time. If God's emotions could be affected by something outside of himself, then he would not be unchangeable. And as such, we could not trust that any of God's promises would be fulfilled because something outside of himself might cause him to change his mind. Only an immutable 
an impassable God can grant any assurance at all. And this is the God who has revealed himself in his word. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God doesn't change. So how does an unchangeable God work to bring salvation for his chosen people? In his wisdom and in the mystery of the Trinity, God the Father sent God the Son to take on human flesh. And God the Son did not cease to become God, but as someone has written, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. So here then are three crucial matters concerning the incarnation that affirm God's wisdom. And the first matter is concerning substitution. Only the God-man, Jesus Christ, could be the perfect substitute for his people, with his life, death and resurrection granting justification to all those who would believe in him. If Jesus was not truly God, then he could not be the saviour. Because the scriptures make clear over and over that only God is the saviour and that salvation comes only from the Lord. Moreover, if Christ was not truly God, then his sacrifice would not have infinite value to pay the price for the sin of all his elect. And indeed, if Christ was merely a finite human being, then he would not have been able to withstand the infinite wrath of holy God poured out upon him against the sin of the elect and then to rise again after his death. But on the other hand, if Jesus was not truly man, then he could have not he could not have represented man as the perfect sacrifice. He needed to have a human body, a human mind, a human will, human emotions, because it was our whole beings uh, that needed redeeming from the bondage and corruption of sin. And moreover, if Christ uh, was not truly man, then he could not obey the law fully on our behalf that he might earn righteousness for his people, a righteousness that would be imputed, credited to them through faith. Only one who was truly God and truly man could enable a glorious substitution to take place. But the second matter that affirms God's wisdom is concerning suffering. Now this is to develop the idea of substitution just a little bit further. Some theologians want to make God a suffering God, suggesting that if God does not suffer, if God is not caused pain by the hurts and sorrows he sees his people going through, then he is no God that we wish to worship. But a suggestion like this is firstly like going to the hospital when we're sick and expecting the doctor to contract the same disease as us so he truly knows what we're going through. How is that helpful? And secondly, it again is another case of submitting what the Bible says to our own thoughts and our own feelings rather than the other way around. It's to place oneself over the text rather than under it. We don't get to decide who we want God to be. God tells us who he is. But if we look at the evidence of scripture, we can see that the nature of the incarnation helps us to begin to understand the nature of God. God cannot suffer because of his immutability and his impassibility, but out of his sheer grace and love, he has chosen to condescend into his creation, to take on human flesh so that he might suffer for the sins of his people, and so that he might die in their place that they might live. 
The incarnation of the Son of God is the definitive answer as to whether God cares for this world. 1 John 4.10 states, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The birth of Christ and his path to the cross shows God's love for this world. But on the cross, uh, we might ask, does God truly suffer? Does God truly die? Well, the incarnation makes the impossible possible. Now, regarding God the Father, we must say that he could not suffer or die either actually or vicariously through Jesus' death. If he could be moved or if he could be killed, then he is not God. And both of these suggestions were made in the early centuries of the church and they were roundly condemned as heretical. Regarding God the Son, let me just ask, is Jesus truly God and truly man in the one person? Yes. Did Jesus suffer and die on the cross? Yes. Does that mean that God suffered and died on the cross? No. Remember the words of the Chalcedonian Creed, which states that Jesus Christ is what? To be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. So on the cross, Jesus died. But we should be more specific and say that Jesus' humanity died not his deity. If in his deity Jesus died, then for three days God ceased to exist. But if God ceased to exist for one second, then everything would cease to exist. No, it was not Jesus' divine nature, but his human nature that was killed, his human body that was buried, and then on the third day his human body that was raised to life, the same body that was crucified and buried, Uh, the same mind and will, but only now having been made indestructible. After Jesus cleared the Jerusalem temple for the first time in John chapter 2, verse 19, he said to the Jews, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He, of course, was referring to his own body. Well, how could he raise it up after his death? Because he was not merely truly man, but also truly God. And Christ remains now and forever truly God and truly man. The unchangeable God cannot be changed and we should be immensely thankful for that. But the fact that he chooses to redeem his elect people out of love that is undeserved should cause unending praise to flow from our lips. Well, the third and last crucial matter addressed by the incarnation that affirms God's wisdom is concerning sympathy. Sympathy. In Hebrews 4 and verse 15 we read, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus Christ is our great high priest who mediates before the Father on behalf of his people. And what makes him so great is that while being truly God, he is also truly man. And as such, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. In his earthly life, Jesus encountered temptations as we do. But unlike the priests of the Old Testament who were fallen sinners, the great high priest, Jesus Christ, was without sin. And the nature of the incarnation helps us to understand this passage and its encouragement for us. It was not Jesus' divine nature that was tempted by sin, because God is holy. No, it was his human nature. But the question that arises from this is that if Jesus is truly God, then could Jesus have actually sinned? Can he actually sympathise with our weaknesses? When answering this, we need to remember several things. First, 
Jesus' human nature was not born with the consequences of original sin like the rest of humanity that flowed from Adam and Eve. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, the virgin birth enabled Jesus to be born truly human, but in the state of Adam and Eve prior to the fall. Adam and Eve originally uh, were made with the ability to sin and the ability not to sin. They began, in a sense, with kind of a morally neutral disposition. Nothing within them caused them to go one way or the other. After the fall, of course, all humans still have freedom to choose what they desire, but the fall affected the human race such that we are not able not to sin. That is the only thing that we can do is sin. And we love it. That is why sinful humans can only choose not to sin if God first graciously affects our wills. But Jesus was not born in a sinful state. In his humanity, he was like Adam and Eve prior to the fall. He had the ability to sin, the ability not to sin. Now, this is where the majority of theologians agree. But where disagreement comes in is in the second aspect. What influence did Jesus' divine nature have upon his ability to sin? Well, some suggest that while Jesus experienced the temptation solely in his human nature... Nevertheless, his divine nature acted as kind of a a fallback uh, to make sure that he could not sin. If he did stumble, the divine nature would be there to catch him and hold him up. But against the language of the Chalcedonian Creed, that suggests that there is a confusion, that there is a mixture of the two natures. It makes Christ's temptations out to be rather superficial because his divine nature would ultimately not allow his human nature to succumb to sin. His human nature was strengthened by the presence of the Holy Spirit who descended upon him during his baptism, anointing and empowering him for ministry, just the same as every other Christian. But it was not his own divine nature That empowered him. I believe that Jesus could have sinned because he was truly human. But that he did not show that his desire was always, always for the things of God. And thirdly, we must remember that while Jesus experienced temptations, there was a difference in that his temptations did not spring from inward sinful desires like us. We experience temptations that come from inside of us and also from outside of us. Jesus, however, because he always desired the things of God, he never experienced a single sinful thought that led to temptation. He did experience temptations that were presented to him from the outside, uh, like the challenges of Satan in the wilderness. But his temptations never sprang up from within himself, never stemmed from his own sinful desires, because he had none. Now that might lead some again to say that he didn't experience what we do. However, the fact that Jesus never succumbed to sin showed that he experienced the power of those temptations to the utmost. We are like the weightlifter who fails after the first round. Whereas Jesus is like the weightlifter who makes it all the way through to the final round and wins because he lifts the most. He experiences the most force upon him He resists it to the utmost and succeeds. And recognising this is a wonderful encouragement and comfort. And of course, as the writer of 
Hebrew shares in that wider context. The point of knowing we have a high priest who sympathises with our weaknesses is to stir us on to greater conviction, to stand firm in the confession of our faith and our obedience to Christ. So the nature of the incarnation affirms the inscrutable wisdom of holy God. Now I have a very simple question for you as we close now. Do you know the Jesus who the scriptures attest to, who the church acknowledged and who affirms God's wisdom? Do you know this Jesus? This is the Jesus who has come into this world for the salvation of his people and who is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven and who will return to judge the living and the dead. Do you know this Jesus? This is the Jesus whom you must repent of your sins before, whom you must trust in wholeheartedly, whom you must obey completely out of love. Do you know this Jesus? Only the one who is truly God and truly man is worthy of submitting to. Only he is worthy of your devotion and praise. This is what the nature of the incarnation reveals. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, our minds are probably hurting as we have sought to plumb the depths of the wonder of the incarnation. But Father, that is a good thing because it humbles us. It humbles us to recognise our finiteness before your infiniteness. We are merely creatures and you are the creator. Father, we thank you so much for the things that we have learnt today, the things that may have challenged us, the things that may have helped us understand more about the, the nature of the incarnation. But we also thank you for the things we have learned throughout this month in the lead up to Christmas and as we uh, we finish uh, this year today and head into the new year. We thank you for your love, which is seen clearly in sending your Son into this world. God, the Son who became man and who reigns forevermore as the God-man, our only Saviour. Father, may you... Uh, stir in us these truths that we might, uh, a song might come out of our hearts and our minds from these, these wonders of who you are and your wisdom seen through the miracle of the incarnation. Father, help us to serve you, to trust you, to obey you, to love you with all of our hearts by the power of your spirit within us. May all glory be to your son. Amen.